Hello. Oh, Ben, are you there? I'm here. John, are you there? Hello, fellows. All Hello. right. We, we've mastered Skype today. Well, for today. <laughs> Don't include me. I have not mastered Skype. Well, we, we've we reached peak Skypeness at least Collective. for a Monday. Collectively. Yeah, collectively we have. Yeah. Um, we, we probably could, uh, I mean, there are other things we could do with Skype, uh, but, uh, we really only use it for the, for the podcasting. Yeah. I'm, so. I don't use it for anything else either. Uh, so, so, so Ben, I, I, I would like to introduce you to, uh, John Roderick. Now I don't actually know John in real life, but, uh, but we've hung out on the internet before. And we certainly we've, have. We've Twittered back and forth and Facebooked. I, I love uh, I love internet uh, acquaintances and friends. Well, thanks thanks so much. It's a pleasure to uh, voice meet you, John. I've I've also I feel like I I know you just based on listening so, to some of your stuff. So this well, will yeah this will this will be good. How do you two know one another? Oh, what a what a great question. We Don and I have been uh, colleagues for a while. I actually met Don. Um, at a conference um, at, where all the food safety nerds hang out, mm-hmm. uh, probably 15 years ago, oh, maybe. Oh, man. And, yeah, I, and, and, I, and I've told this story before, but let me tell it again for John's <laughs> benefit. So I, I knew uh, Ben's major advisor very well, and, and so uh, his, his, he is a guy named Doug. And Doug brought Ben to a conference, and when I first met Ben, he was smoking a cigarette, and I, cu- I thought he was kind of an ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and I what, the greatest thing is I don't I I don't smoke cigarettes. Um, so one of the one of the four cigarettes that I had smoked uh, in, in in my life, Don was there for, and it was <laughs> being an ass. <laughs> but you are not you uh, you don't share a locale. You're you're distant colleagues. We we are we are. Um, Don's located in New Jersey. Uh, I am located in North Carolina. Um, and when, when we met, I was a student, uh, in Canada at, uh, at a university there. And, uh, I have since moved, uh, to North Carolina to become a professor at this locale. But yeah, no, we, uh, we, Don and I, I mean, we, we, we grew we spent- up actually, we grew up equidistant from the Canadian border, Ben on the Canadian side and me on the New York state side. So, uh, but at different times, so separated temporally as well as, uh, physically. Where did you go to college, Ben? I went to the University of Guelph. Ah, of Guelph. Yes, which is uh, uh, known as, uh, I think, uh, Canada's food and agricultural hub. Uh, and I'm sure I've uh, pissed off uh, at least four Canadians that listen mm-hmm. to the podcast that are not from Guelph. Who are, who are offended uh, by uh, Guelph being called an Aggie school or who I, are offended that their school isn't considered the Aggie school? I would think both, both of those things. I think two, two and two, uh, on the, in the camp. So, I mean, equal opportunity offenders. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I did, I, I spent, um, all of my degree time there and then, uh, moved to, to North Carolina. And then Don and I started this podcast. Um, gosh, I think five years ago now. Oh, hello. Yeah, we've been doing this for a while. Um, so now, in your experience, are most food safety professionals uh, from Aggie colleges? Is this a is this a thing where like is Cornell turn out a lot of food safety people, or is it unrelated? 
No, absolutely, no, I, it's related. I, absolutely, yes. But most, most, most food safety people come from departments of food science, and most departments of food science are located in colleges of agriculture. So, for example, uh-huh. uh, the places I went to school, uh, my degrees are all in food science, and those were in, all in colleges of agriculture. And, and at Rutgers, I'm in a food science department also in a college of agriculture. It's not, it's not universal, uh, but it's probably 90 to 95%. Now, why does Rutgers, of all colleges, have an an agriculture college? That is a good question. Um, I think of Rutgers as being one of the most urbanized colleges in the country. Well, you know, John, have you have you seen our license plate? We are the Garden State. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But it, but the gardens are not in East Orange. This is true. Well, there are probably gardens in East Orange, but there's actually there are there are rooftop gardens in in Newark. But but that's that's a separate uh, discussion. But yeah. no. So we have a lot of agriculture in the southern part of the state. We grow. A lot of blueberries. We grow a lot of cranberries. We have a lot of vegetable production in the southern part of the state. And so as a consequence of that, we have uh, had a college of agriculture for, for some time. Now, the, the, way, the way most of these colleges got started was with something called uh, – they're called land-grant colleges. And so they were nice. granted land, uh, which they then used to start the college. Now, at the time that we were started, there was really no land in New Jersey to grant us. And so what we were granted land somewhere out in the, in the west or the mid west which we then sold to, to fund uh, the creation of the of the 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 um uh, our, our agricultural uh, is that right they gave yeah. you land in indiana and then you use that to leverage uh the building of the university uh, the, well, not the university, okay? So the university goes back 250 years. The colleges of agriculture only go back uh, about 100 and, and some odd years. But, uh, but, when, but when, uh, when a college of agriculture was created, they had a choice of different uh, universities to, to put it at, and Rutgers was the state university, and so that's where it got, uh, that's where it got uh, associated with. I have learned so much <laughs> already. <laughs> Have we started this podcast, or do you? Is this one of those where you're going to say, "Nah, well, no. let's get started"? No, we're, we're like in it. This is okay. this is as formal as we get. I mean, uh, yeah, this is uh, we we started we started uh, we started like uh, an hour ago. Oh, no. good, <laughs> good, because that happens sometimes where I'll, I'll have a very interesting conversation with somebody and they'll say, "Well, we better get started," and I'm like, "Oh, come on, we've been going for 15 minutes." Yeah, exactly. We like uh, this is pretty much what Don and I do is we 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 jump on every couple of weeks and we're like, okay, let's let's just talk. Let's talk about what's uh, what's going on in the world of food safety. And we we have very little uh, pre-show preparation uh, other than maybe sharing a few links back and forth. So now we're we're in we're in the same camp. I like I like jumping in kind of cold and uh, and then warm it up as we go. So now let me ask you another question. As you are uh, training as food scientists. When do you make the decision to specialize in food safety, oh, which seems like oh. a, pecul- a peculiarity? That is, that is an excellent question. So we, uh, so as an undergrad, you do not specialize. Undergrads are typically granted degrees in, in food science. It's when you go to graduate school and you have to pick a research topic that you typically uh, decide to focus. And at least at Rutgers, and I, I think at most schools it's divided this way, uh, but at Rutgers we are uh, food biologists, food chemists, and food engineers. 
Mm-hmm. And it's typically the food biologists, uh, specifically the microbiologists that are food safety people. Now, there right. are people that study chemical toxicology, and so they could be in the food chemistry area. And then there are some food engineers who study food processing, you know, uh, uh, heat processing or other types of processing, um, and they may have a, a food safety orientation. But I would say it's the majority of us are, are food microbiologists. And, and again, we decide that in graduate school. Right. And, and I, I took a little uh, different path. I... Um, do not have an undergraduate degree or, or any degree in food science. I am, I have a one degree in molecular biology, which is a fancy term for um, methods. Um, and I have two degrees in plant agriculture with a focus on food safety. So I actually came at it from a uh, production standpoint, and I, I worked in vegetable production and looking at how do we keep salmonella and E. coli off of tomatoes and cucumbers. Uh, and then I got um, much more interested in non-production food safety questions and started working in restaurants, but still did that under this guise of plant agriculture. So I, I'm, I'm a little sideways into it. Uh, but also through, you know, a, a, a college of, of agriculture, just not on the, like, food science um Entry well, and mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. your your PhD advisor in that plant sciences department has a degree himself in food science, right? And he, he was does he more does. in plant science because I don't know they didn't like him in food science or something. Yeah, <laughs> so, something like that. Something like that. And they they liked him uh, more. It's it's all relative. Yeah. <laughs> now it so, sounds yeah. to me like you guys are coming at food biology and food science from a like a plant culture, how do you then learn the whole world of animal husbandry and meat food science? Oh, that's an excellent excellent question. So most departments of food science have as their their origin another department. So for example, the, the Department of Food Science at Cornell came out of dairy science, and so they have a strong dairy processing orientation. Um, the Department uh, of Food Science at University of Maryland came out of plant science, and so they have a strong vegetable production orientation. The I Department see. of Food Science at University of Georgia came from the meat science department, and so they have a strong meat processing orientation. Um, so. Typically, the departments have those as origins. Now, Rutgers is a little bit unique in that we were formed as a freestanding department. We weren't an outgrowth of another department, but they sort of pulled – they did pull some faculty from, from other departments to create our department, but, but it, was, it was not uh, sort of birthed from uh, a single department. But, uh, but right. that's an excellent question. And so, obviously, different departments, because of that background, may have more or less expertise in, in a given area. Uh, what, do you know what the specialty of the uh, of Washington State University is? Boy, that is uh, a good question. There, so I, I do have some colleagues that I've worked with there in the food safety uh, realm who have uh, done some dairy uh, work, especially related to, I think, Cougar Gold uh, cheese that comes out of Washington <laughs> State. I'm familiar with that can dairy products. Cougar Gold. Uh, Cougar Gold. Cougar Gold. Uh, and and actually, some of the um, some of the best work in hamburger cooking and temperature thermometer use and color change uh, also came out of Washington State University in my in my little area of the, of the field, which is largely how do consumers handle food at home. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think, uh, and then I believe, and this is like a little like 
um, weird um, situation. I believe that Washington State's Food Science Department and University of Idaho's Food Science Department share like a, a like an administrative head. Like I think they're merged or something across the universities. Yeah, something weird, something different. They're only like uh, three miles apart. Right. They are on opposite sides of the state line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I've been out there uh, a couple of times, and uh, another one of our former guests on the on, on this podcast um, used to be, I don't know, some he was, he went to Washington State, um, and now he's a big shot food safety lawyer uh-huh. um, in Seattle, but he, he's also uh, a, a proponent of um, safe food uh, internationally, but it also has this uh, Washington State connection. So I, I actually visited the university with him. His name's Bill Marler. Bill Marler. Yeah. In fact, you 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 may not know Bill John, but but you probably know of him. He is a uh, he's a food safety lawyer. He, he's made his his business suing food companies that screw up. But he got his start uh, with the Jack in the Box outbreak, and I've heard oh, you, you know, actually yeah. talk about that. And I think I've even heard yeah. you say on another podcast that you think that you were probably a victim in that outbreak. I'm pretty sure I was in that I ate at that Jack in the Box that day and got violently sick. Huh. But I was a poor person and didn't seek any treatment. I just sat around and and uh, barfed and pooped. Mm. And uh, and then, only then, did I sort of become aware that other people were sick and that that it killed some people. So I always considered myself a a uh, an E. coli survivor, but. You know, I don't have. I never went to the doctor. So yeah. Well, and in Shook fact, that's that. That's an, a good point. And in fact, that's something that we talk about very often on the podcast. Is that most people that get sick uh, in an outbreak or get sick with a sporadic illness don't actually end up reporting it. Um, they they may go to the doctor. Uh, they may not. If they go to the doctor, the doctor probably won't order a stool culture, and the doctor will just say, "Yeah, you you probably have food poisoning here. Uh, you know, get plenty of rest and drink plenty of fluids and." Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, foodborne disease that uh, experts believe go- actually goes unreported. And so it's not it's actually not that su- surprising. Obviously, if you oh, had I gotten think... really ill, um, maybe you would have gone to the doctor and would have gone to the hospital. But not not that surprising. Yeah. I mean, I, I have had food poisoning many times. I've never reported it to anybody. And a couple of times it's been devastating. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure exactly what level of of beat up by it you would have to be to go to the hospital i suppose if you stop breathing um or maybe before i so said if you're a kid right if you're or if your kid is that sick you, t- you would take them to the doctor but i always just sort of crouched on the bathroom floor and moaned until it passed usually <laughs> in 24 hours right right agony. uh well, ben you said yeah. you said a moment ago that uh that a lot of the things you know that that pollute plant foods are things like salmonella and E. coli, which seem to be animal-transmitted uh, uh, infection or animal-transmitted transla- uh, uh, bio-agents yeah. that can get messed up on plants. What are some of the plant-specific dangers other you know, than, like, improper canning or whatever? Right, right, right. Well, so, I mean, that that was exactly where, where I was going to go. We don't actually see... Um, uh, we we see a lot of illnesses that are linked to animal hosts, and whether that be, um, 
you know, wild animals like deer where E. coli can be, uh, you know, they, they can be a source for E. coli. Uh, we also see humans being a, a pretty decent source if we think about stuff like norovirus or hepatitis A. And we see a lot of norovirus um, in the U.S. Probably half of the foodborne illnesses are norovirus. And those are those are largely like vomit or feces from people getting into food. Um we see like so uh, increasingly one of the the pathogens that Don and I have talked about a lot on this podcast over the last couple of years is uh is something called listeria. Mm-hmm. And it's uh a, an organism that is really common in soil and yeah there there are likely some animal hosts and also it's it's just probably common in the environment and increasingly we're seeing that with um fresh fruits and vegetables and frozen uh, vegetables. So we've had a couple of outbreaks um, uh, linked to that. And we don't really know the source. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty unlikely that it's coming from the plants themselves, but it's other environmental uh, contaminants. And whether that be soil getting into like a processing plant, like a place where you freeze vegetables or into a, a plant where you, where they make, um, you know, bag lettuce or bag yeah. salad uh, type stuff. Um, but I mean, largely the, the stuff that we get concerned about has some sort of animal or human, uh, human host. Uh-huh. Well, and then the other thing too, is that you're, you're right that a lo- you think salmonella, you think animal intestine, uh, but actually um, uh, uh, some colleagues of mine who've done a lot of work with, uh, with nuts have found if you go out and survey at least some um, nut orchards, you find salmonella, uh, in some orchards, persistent in the soil, and so it's not uh, doesn't. Maybe it had an animal origin originally, but it's now become established in that environment. And the same thing with respect to salmonella in water. Um, uh, so a colleague of mine have, have done, and I have done some work in uh, Florida. Actually, she 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 did the work I just helped, um, but went out and collected a whole lot of data in Florida water and found uh, in much of it salmonella. Um, and oh. that, that can't. It's not all necessarily animal contaminated. It's probably some of it is persistent and we've seen the same thing with with some strains of e coli in water too so it, it now that may that may have always been there it may have been there as a consequence of changes that humans have made to the environment but but the the days of like instantly blaming animals for uh, contamination in vegetables i think that's that's gone we just we just can't always make that clear a connection so those organisms can survive and propagate just on their own in swamp water yes Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the, the fun stuff with the nuts um, and almond orchards and maybe pistachios and, and walnuts, as, as our colleagues are investigating that, maybe it's not even water, but it might be just in the soil itself. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of nutrients in soil. There's a lot of organic matter that, that uh, bacteria can, can churn through and grow with good, good water. So, yeah, it may, be, it may be often just the environment itself. Wow. Yeah. Now, one of the things uh, that Don uh, kind of persistently lectures me about <laughs> on the internet um, is that I am a, I'm a leftover food eater, a leftover food hoarder. Yeah, and I don't always, uh, you know, my mom grew up on a farm in Ohio in the 1930s, and she has, you know, and, and on her farm as a child they had an ice box. And they sort of stored their food, 
they they were uh, they were you know they did a tremendous amount of canning. But my mom has a, a like a farm girl's constitution, as I do, uh, and I'm one of the all time great farm girls. <laughs> and she has a pretty sanguine uh, mid century sense of like, is that food good? Is that food not good? And in general, she sort of like smell it. How's it smell? And I go, mm, smells fine. And she's like, it's probably good. And we say that type of thing to each other a lot. It's probably good. And so we eat things that have been around a while. We eat things that have been sitting out a while. She has a theory that some, a lot of sugar in it won't ever spoil because the sugar kind of, I mean, it'll get moldy, but it won't ever get, you know, spoil, like make you sick. She kind of also feels that way about things that have a lot of salt in them. I'm never sure. I don't have her confidence because I never lived in a corn crib or whatever the hell she, <laughs> it was like to be her. But my, but I have a, I have a kind of like, hmm. There's some pizza under the bed. I wonder how long it's been there. Looks good. Smells I'll eat good. It. Yeah, it smells good. good. I eat it. Yeah. And there are other people in my life that blanch at the thought. And and Don has you know chimed in quite a bit and said, hmm, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. Uh, but you know, Don is also very accepting of other people. He's not he's not going to come through the internet tubes and uh, and whack me with a loaf of bread. But this is the realm in which I you know I have a lot of questions because I'll put something in the refrigerator in a glass container, but then I come upon it again somewhere in the 10 to 14 day range. And I'm like, huh, it's been in there a long time, but it's not seafood and it sort of smells fine. And I just, I generally go for it. Um, what am I risking and how, what are some of the things I should know and how do I, you know, how do I tell the old good food from old bad food. Oh, that's a this is a tough one. This is this is where where Don and I kind of um, there there are two like mantras in in our food safety world where it's complicated and it depends. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's what my mom says. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good. She's. I mean, that's a farm girl uh, answer. That's where that's, Don's one of the classic farm girls as well. And that's who I've learned it from. Uh, and, and so. So here, here are the, the different factors that, that, that go on in, into this. Like if we're looking at some sort of food that has a lot of acid in it, that's, that's uh, you know, really um, – Like spaghetti sauce. Yeah, yeah, or even more like, um, like pickles. Or ketchup, you know, things that like, and I, and I know those aren't typically the, the leftovers, but, but we also get lots of questions about, Hey, how long can I keep this stuff in my fridge for? Right. And we we're using in some of those foods, those, those high acid foods, we're using that acid to, um, limit the growth of any of the bugs that we're concerned about as in food safety, the pathogens, the things that make you sick. So typically Um, pickles and ketchup are in a category with me where they just live in the fridge indefinitely. Yeah. And which would be not, not an, um, a a super risky situation. What we're, what we're concerned with those are spoilage and that's the smell test. So 
we can get some yeast, we can get some mold, some other bacteria that's not going to make you sick that that'll create some off flavors and off smells over time. But the stuff that um, that makes you sick is is largely controlled by um, by temperature and by by acidity um, and water activity. So how um, really moist the product is or how how much water is available to to the to the bacteria and so the i guess the it depends part is it depends on the food it depends on what temperature your refrigerator is at mm-hmm. um, and it depends on the time um, and, and so if you know the what we look at in in restaurants and don and i also work with with restaurants along around food safety um, the the uh, uh, accepted time temperature combination for things can grow bacteria would be if we're keeping the food below 41 degrees seven days hmm. now now here's the problem is that we we do know from research that most refrigerators that exist in people's homes across the u.s aren't at 41 degrees they're somewhere in the 45 degree range oh. and, and that Four degree temperature shaves four days off of the the time that you might have some listeria grow to a larger problem of listeria, and that's largely in leftovers. What we're what we're worried about, and so I that see. so it is. It's kind of like I mean, we, we we end up being like detectives on some of these questions um, because your pickles versus your meatloaf versus your bread. Whatever or pizza, whatever you've got, you've got left over in, in your fridge. They all kind of have different, different answers, right? Um, which is, I mean, it's confusing. It's kind of a pain in the ass. Well, and I, I would say too, there's a, a couple of points uh, that you made earlier, John, that I want to come back to. And your your mom talking about sugar and salt, and and Ben's comment about water activity. One of the great tools that we had, and this may have been a tool that that she had as a, as a farm girl, is using sugar and salt to preserve things. So one of the reasons why jams and jellies last so long is that they have a very low water activity and they have that low water activity, low water availability to microorganisms because of that high sugar content. Salt does the same thing. Believe it or not, soy sauce um, actually is a very low water activity food, even though it looks liquid. Um, that incre- and this is not, we're not talking the light soy sauce stuff. We're talking the real stuff. Um, that mm-hmm. stuff is actually shelf stable because of the, the presence of, of salt. Um, and then also you mentioned finding pizza under the bed. I actually have a, a colleague uh, at Cornell who, who teaches an undergrad or used to teach an undergrad food, chemist, or food uh, microbiology class, and they would leave pizza and beer out overnight, and they would test, they would do the microbiology on both of those things. And when they did that, they discovered that, guess what? Actually, you can grow a lot more microorganisms overnight in beer than you can in pizza. And the reason why is that pizza, it's a baked product. It's got cheese, which is already low water activity. Maybe it's got that tomato sauce for that acidity. And then it's bread. And so actually, it, it, pizza can be quite shelf stable um, for, for a long period of time. Um, and then the other point, which, which Ben already alluded to that's really important, is Often we're making a decision about spoilage versus safety. So something something can be unsafe but be perfectly fine and not spoiled. Something can be spoiled but be perfectly safe 
or it could be neither, or it could be both. It could be both spoiled and contain pathogenic bacteria. And, and uh-huh. one of the things that I find when talking with like normal people, people that aren't, that aren't food scientists or food microbiologists, is they really have a fundamental confusion about spoiled food versus unsafe food. And they, they are really uh, potentially completely independent. Uh-huh. Okay, so let's say I'm making some stuff. I make a pot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's say it's uh, like a pot of stew. Mm. A nice big pot of stew. And I, and, uh, and I fix myself a bowl of it. Like I make a big pot of it, but I dish up a bowl. And I go, I turn the heat off on the stove. And I go, I eat the bowl of stew. And then I wander around the house. I play piano for a while. I go out, I water the garden. Uh, maybe I lay down on the couch, I take a nap. I come back, and the pot of stew has been sitting on the stove, and it has cooled. And it's been sitting there, kind of cooling off, and let's say for several hours. And I see the stew, and I go, oh, shit, right. I left the stew on the stove, and then I put a lid on it, and I put it in the refrigerator. Now, was that enough time for something to lodge itself in the stew? So good, good question. So, so, and unfortunately, it's complicated. But but hey, we've got, we've got a podcast, and we can we can explain this. So, um, the the first point is that any vegetative pathogens, so any organisms like Salmonella and E. coli that were in that stew meat, you've I'm going to assume for the sake of our discussion that you have properly cooked that stew meat, and so any organisms like Salmonella and like E. coli are long since killed. And so you, you have rendered that stew free of organisms like salmonella and E. coli. Now, there's a possibility that they could become recontaminated if you've got salmonella flying around your kitchen, but most people don't. And so let's say for the sake of discussion, you don't have salmonella flying around your kitchen. And so that, that stew, that salmonella-free stew uh, again, Louis Pasteur disproved spontaneous generation. And so there will be no salmonella manifesting <clears throat> in your stew unless you put it there. But like I said, it's complicated. There is also another food poisoning organism called Clostridium. And there's a couple of different types of Clostridia, but the one I'm going to talk about in this case is an organism called Clostridium perfringens. So this is an organism that forms spores. And this, this spore-forming organism, and it's related to Clostridium botulinum, which is the organism that causes botulism. So Clostridium perfringens forms spores. Those spores... Don, yeah. I hate to interrupt you, but there's someone at the door. <laughs> uh, just I'll invite I, them just, in. Hold that thought about Clostinium, and yes. Oh, okay, great. Uh, I hope you don't mind that I'm sitting here on the couch. Okay. All right, so there's a man here to change the lock on the door, so you may hear some uh, some drilling sounds. That's perfectly fine. This this happened okay. on a on a podcast you were doing the other day, where a man came to check the gas line. Yeah, that's right. This is you know this is what happens when you don't just do a podcast from your house or from your office. Right, you right. You, okay, so Clostridium yep. is a spore-forming organism. Yes, Clostrid- Clostridium perfringens um, forms spores, and those spores survive the cooking process. There's basically no way that you as a normal human in your, in your kitchen can, can kill these uh, spores in, in beef stew anyway, in, in it, cooked on your stove top. So the spores actually survive the cooking process, and in fact, if they're in the meat, and they're, it's not in every piece of meat, and so you may, you, chances are you have no perfringens in your meat to start with, but let's say, you know, in this case you did, that organism, the spores would, would be stimulated 
by the heating process, those spores would germinate. They would form cells because now the, the, the heat is done and the, and the spores are sitting on the stove and, it, and, and, and the, the food is cooling down. And now that organism starts to grow. And in fact, this particular organism, although it's, it doesn't grow in the refrigerator, it grows really, really well in that temperature of about 120 degrees Fahrenheit down to about 80 degrees Fahrenheit that that stew is going to be at as it's cooling. Um, and so that, in that particular situation, you could begin to grow Clostridium perfringens up to, uh, and this is another thing too, like Salmonella and E. coli, you can get sick from <clears throat> one Salmonella cell or, or one E. coli cell. With Clostridium perfringens, you probably need um, hundreds of thousands or at least tens of thousands. And, but the thing is, depending on how long you left that on your, on your, out on your counter, you might have that. Now, you're probably not going to see that in three hours. You're probably not going to see it in four hours. It, you, by the next day, I can say for sure you would have seen it. So your, your typical practice of playing the piano and waiting three hours before you put it in the fridge, it's not what we call a best practice. Like the, what we would tell if, like if a, uh, a member of the public were to call Ben or I and, and ask us, we would say, well, you pr probably should get that in the fridge within an hour. Maybe you can push it to two. I can tell you because, you know, you're, you're now sort of in the club, right? I can tell you, John, that three hours is probably okay. In fact, four hours is probably okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't push it much beyond that because then you really do start to get into real, uh, some real chance of risk. But again, perfringens, well, you know, it's not gonna. It's probably not gonna put you in the hospital. It's just gonna make you sick. You'll you'll be hating life for 24 hours, and you'll probably recover and be just fine. So that's my spiel on your beef stew. Yeah. Now let's say I'm cooking sausage, and uh, I pull it off the stove, and I cut it up uh, when it's halfway cooked. So the inside of the sausage is still pink and cold-ish, and the outside is kind of already burned and starting to cook. And then I put it back in the, in the pan and cook it all the way through. But is my cutting board now polluted by having the half-cooked sausage as a, uh, you know, kind of like on it? This is a raw, raw sausage, fresh sausage, not a uh, pre-cooked uh, sausage meat. That's right. It's, it's raw sausage, and I'm cooking it, I, and I kind of like yep. put it in the pot, and I singe it, you know, and then I want to slice it into, into slices rather than eat it as a whole sausage. Yeah, so um, uh, probably or potentially, yeah, it, it is that, that not all the way cooked through um, sausage. And this is, this is where... Don and I get a, a little nerdy and know, want to know more about the temperature. So if, if that still pink in the middle sausage was below, say, 135, 140 degrees, um, yeah, you're, you're probably treating that just like if it was at 40 degrees. Um, if, it's, if it's gone a little bit higher but it's still pink because temperature – doesn't always um, lead to an immediate color change. Like we, we can cook a hamburger um, or pork for, for that matter um, for uh, really, really high heat for a short amount of time um, and change color. 
uh, or the older the meat is uh, that it's been sitting in a refrigerator, or if it's been frozen, it's going to have a different sort of color. So we can't always tell what the color is. But if if the temperature had not reached above, um, you know, say 145 degrees, um, you, you're unlikely to kill any of the uh, all of the pathogens, or, or at least the majority of the pathogens that might be there in the first place. Well, and just to just to put a finer point on it. Um, Yes, there is a theoretical risk that you've contaminated your cutting board, but <clears throat> actually, if we went out to the to the marketplace today and we we went and sa- sampled a bunch of fresh uncooked sausage, I think most of the s- sausage links that we would test would probably be free of pathogens. But so so most right. of the time you could you could have that practice, John, and you'd be fine. But every one in a hundred times or one in fifty times, you might contaminate that cutting board. So oh. you know it's it's a prob it's 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 a probability game. I mean, and that's that's my answer to everything. But but in this case, it really is true. It's a probability game. So not every egg has salmonella. Oh no! In fact, with, no. with eggs, we know for sure. Uh, at least eggs in the United States, based on the best available data, it's probably something like one in every ten thousand or one in every twenty thousand eggs that poses wow. a risk. So back to your one of the things that I think got got me started uh, thinking about having you on the podcast: egg in a cup, right? Uh, your egg in a cup recipe, which you should share with the listeners. Um, you're probably even if you don't fully cook that egg, your risk is relatively low. But uh, but but yeah, it's uh, but but it but it's a risk, right? It's it's not it's not zero, but it's just really low. I see. But like like uh, Sylvester Stallone's fifteen eggs in a blender. 15 raw eggs in a blender uh, rocky milkshake, uh, even though it's very gross, there's a good chance that he's not going to get sal- salmonella. Well, here, but here's the thing. Each egg that you add to that batch of eggs increases the risk, right? And right. so uh, the risk from one egg, and again, I can't do probabilities quickly in my head, but, but uh, one egg has a certain risk. Two eggs, now for you to get sick, it's not like both eggs have to be positive. Either egg could be positive and you'd get sick. And then if you change right. that to 15 eggs, and then we could calculate, Not we won't do it here on the podcast because it would be deathly boring, but we could calculate 15 eggs a day over a year with a one in 10,000 risk, how many times would Sylvester Stallone get sick? And, and I can tell you that, that, that you know, the, the more eggs in that batch and the more number of days that you eat that, the, the higher the chance that he's going to get sick from, from salmonellosis sometime during that year. Right, right. Sylvester Stallone in this instance is probably going to get sick a non-trivial number of times. Exactly. Well said, sir. Well said. Um, now, why can we eat steak tartare? Well, that's we can't. <laughs> well, no, no, we can't. We can Don, Don, we can eat anything. That's a risk management choice. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, but but um, you feel like steak tartare is a risky food. Yes. It, yeah, I would say it, it carries more risk than steak non tartare. <laughs> uh, uh, no, so I mean the um, it, it 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 comes back to. What, what Don had kind of mentioned before about the probability of um, meat being contaminated. Um, not all meat's going to be contaminated and not all meat's going to be contaminated at the same rate. Um, and 
what's you know even the risk the different pathogens may may be different we we talk about e coli um o one five seven uh which is the the type of e coli that uh was linked to the jack in the box outbreak um but we uh, just as often we'll see salmonella associated with beef um and so you know all of these things mixed together um we uh, often Don and I kind of talk about relative risk and benefit and, and and to me i would i would choose not to eat a steak tar eat steak tartare because the benefit doesn't outweigh the risk i mean that's yeah there there are there are other types of foods that i would rather eat raw and get a a taste benefit and i'm and i'll i'll give you a a specific example i i'm a fan of raw fish sushi um and the pathogens historically for sushi um are parasites um and, and so we we manage those by freezing the fish first um you know typically and that that should kill the worms that are that are in that fish but increasingly over the last couple of years we've seen some salmonella be associated with um different types of grades of sushi um and and so i mean it, it, all of these things boil down to um personal choice and, and risk and relative risk and what's worth it uh, for, for someone to, uh, to make that decision. And I feel like Don and I kind of sit in this area of um, trying to give people and uh, people with the loose, like dick finger quotes, um, uh, ev- you know, everyone, the best uh, information to make informed decisions and then let it, let people make their own their own choices and 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 eating sushi is something that i'll do but i'm unlikely to feed it to my kids who are still developing their immune systems at uh eight and and five is that right yeah and 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 i and i would say and i want to come back to the issue of kids john because i i know you have a young daughter and i I want to hear how you manage food safety for her if you do but a steak tartare is not something that i seek out and that i would eat on a regular basis on the other hand i was in where was i finland uh i think i was in finland and they had as an appetizer they had reindeer tartare and you know i had a taste of it and it was kind of good and it was kind of interesting but that was a special occasion you know with sitting around the table with a bunch of food safety experts and a number of food safety experts ate the reindeer tartare and a number of them didn't and as far as i know nobody got sick but but ultimately as ben said it is a it is a risk management decision there's probably no uh no guarantee of uh no guarantee of safety so but but so john if if, if you would if you wouldn't mind um can you talk a little bit about how you manage food safety for your family well Typically, my daughter at five years old has a, a pretty limited palate, and so I don't feed her leftovers. I generally prepare her meal, uh, you know, individually for her each time, and she doesn't want sushi. I think for obvious reasons, um, but I have tried to feed her sushi and generally because i eat sushi a lot and so have given her california roll you know no it's right. uh, it's yeah, yeah. what i assume to be that weird fake crab meat yep. uh dosed in mayonnaise so i mean it's not completely without risk but it's but i'm not feeding her raw mackerel either right um and 
you know, she she prefers a, a, a pretty simple range of foods. So I find it easy to give her food that that I'm not worried about. The number one thing I'm worried about with her is I went to a conference one time a few years ago, the uh, conference on world affairs, and one of the speakers <clears throat> was a scientist that had done extensive research on the um, the hormones in plastic mm. and how those hormones, in particularly in plastic water bottles, BP. A BPA BPA BPA, uh, how those those uh, hormones leach into the water, and he was so uh, exci- excited, and I mean that not in a happy way, but like he was uh, agitated to the point of uh, really preaching from the pulpit that for most of us grown adults, it's too late, uh, and. Plastic water in plastic bottles is like uh, the ship has sailed. But if you have a young daughter, don't ever let her drink water from a plastic water bottle. And he said the whole business of BPA-free plastic is baloney. They just changed the name of the thing, and you know these plastics cause them to have uh, weird early puberties and terrible things happen. So I'm 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 very conscious of her not drinking water you know from a from that kind of plastic bottle but it's almost impossible to keep all that water out of her hands because pla- you know water in plastic bottles has become a it's a plague upon the land um and I don't know if I don't know what you guys think of that that's le- less microbiology and more chemistry but do you have opinions? Yeah, and uh, let me let me answer first, and then Ben, who has young kids, can talk about what what his practices are with with his kids. Um, I would say that certainly there are people out there who think that you know BPA is you know the, the work of the devil and it's really horrible. It? Um, I, I, my opinion oh, is yeah. if Thank it you. really yeah. if it really was uh, a danger then our good friends at the Food and Drug Administration would, uh, would, would manage that risk for us. And so that's, um, that, that's a bit of me abdicating responsibility, but it's also a bit of me saying, you know, I'm not a toxicologist, but guess what? FDA has a lot of really smart toxicologists, and they're charged with overseeing the safety of the food supply, which includes bottled water. And if they're not worried about it and they're worried about other things, see, it, with the thing with risk is it's all about priorities, right? It's like we, as, as a dearly departed friend of mine used to say, the risks of not eating still outweigh the risks of eating. We have to eat something, right? We have to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have to drink something, right? And so it's all about risk management and about priorities. And, and honestly, if, if getting BPA out of water bottles was a priority of the FDA, they would do it and the industry would bitch about it and then they would they would change that. But but and actually with all of the the concern about BPA, at least the concern in people's minds, whether it's founded on science or not or what the strength of the science is, um, I think that the industry is 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 modifying that because they want to cater to, to consumer demand, whether that's based on science or not. But I don't know. Ben, what do you, what do you do with respect to your kids and, and, and BPA? Is that and I guess you have two boys, so it's a little bit different maybe in terms of the hormonal considerations but do you do you think about that do you worry about that at all 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do think about it. It's something that that I also um, investigated when they were um, when they were younger, and, and when we had to make some decisions about um, the types of water bottles that we would or you know drinking bottles that we'd send them to school with, um, and um, so two. Two things have kind of happened. One is, is I, and, and again, not being a toxicologist, but also trusting in FDA's regulation uh, side of things, and then reviewing what FDA is um, has focused on over the last five or six or even more, maybe decade, uh, on the types of studies that they've funded and the types of research that they're doing, uh, and then reviewing that, um, you know, their um, recommendations. Uh, I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm not as uh, I'm not very concerned about it uh, from a from a parent standpoint. But when I try to go buy a water bottle, the decision's kind of made for me because I can't buy a BPA free or I can't buy a BPA included water bottle. <laughs> like if I was if I was planning to get one, right? Like I'm, I'm unlikely not, but. It, it is um, – they're just not marketed uh, for – I think a lot of the reasons about that conversation we're having is that um, there, there, um, there is likely – there is a risk there. There's a risk in everything that, that we do. How large that risk is is maybe not well known um, uh, right now. As, as more research goes on, maybe it will be characterized uh, in the, hey, it's a lot less riskier than we thought it was or it's a lot more riskier than th- we thought it was or – the risk is exactly what we thought it was. You know, whatever. It's somewhere in that in that paradigm. Uh, but in the interim, it's not uh, it's not something that uh, you know, water bottle companies can you know will market. And and I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't know enough about BPA to John your your second comment about the individual who is who is really excited about you know BPA free just replace it with something else. I don't. I mean, I, I haven't seen the same kind of concern with whatever the BPA, um, BPA next is, or, or, you know, or whatever. And, and I, I mean, I really do. And this is, I guess, the bias of the, the food microbiologist side of, of what I do. Um, I am much more concerned with the stuff that we know leads to a lot of illnesses and these acute illnesses. And, and, and so I, you know, we can, we, as Don said, we can only prioritize, um, we, we can only make priorities on, on the risks, not focus on everything. I'm very curious about your comments on sushi, and I guess my question is, I mean, you are in North Carolina, yes. so a lot of the sushi has to be filtered culturally through uh, places where they actually know what sushi is and then trucked to North Carolina. Well, we do have a coast. Well, that's true. I suppose that's true. <laughs> yeah, we do. But we... the coast is just swamp swamp people, right? We. Well... I mean, yes, yeah. of course, um, but sometimes those swamp people can roll a mean sushi roll. Uh, oh, yeah, um, no, I mean we have we uh, and, and you know I'll I'll, jo- I'll jokes aside on this one. We do. I mean, I think a lot of the um, the fish that we have for sushi um, in our state does not come from our coast. Right, it comes from, from elsewhere. Absolutely. So, uh, so living on the west coast, like when we were on tour as a rock band. For those listeners not familiar with my history, I am a rock musician. I always hesitate right on this side of saying that I'm a rock star, because if I were a rock star, you would have heard of me. So <laughs> You probably would do our podcast. I'm, yeah, well, maybe. Maybe because this stuff interests me, and rock stars are a very quirky group of people. It's true. It's true. 
But I was a, a, a rock touring musician for many years, and we had a rule in the band. We had a lot of rules. But one of the rules was never get sushi in a state that doesn't touch the ocean. Yep. Even though we knew that the sushi was, in a lot of cases, being flown from somewhere, um, we just knew that if you're in Oklahoma and you go to a sushi restaurant, eh, don't bother. It's sort of like don't get Thai food in Minneapolis. And I know a lot of people in Minneapolis are right now standing up out of their chairs and protesting. <laughs> let me tell you, Minneapolis, St. Paul, you have terrible Thai food. And what you, what you think is good is not good. Uh, but in Seattle in particular, given that it is the home of the Alaska fishing fleet, we get a lot of fish that purports at least to never have, have been frozen. Right. And um, so I'm very interested in fish worms, uh, parasites. Like how prevalent are they in which fish? How do you prevent them? And am I, am I being fooled and all fish has been frozen at one point or another? Well, um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I guess uh, how, how I would answer that is um, – for, uh, you know, FDA, um, who would regulate the businesses that would sell uh, sushi, um, their, their regulations uh, require that uh, fish that is destined to be eaten raw would be frozen first for the parasite reasons. Um, so I'm sure there are lots of fish that have has never been frozen um, that would not be destined to be eaten raw. Um, I think that people might get around the, this has never been frozen to, well, this was frozen really quickly and thawed really quickly. Right. Um, Flash frozen, they call it. Correct. Yeah. Not frozen and then stored frozen and then thought, you know, transported frozen, um, but frozen as a, as a risk management stuff for, for parasites. And, and, you know, truthfully, um, I I don't know. uh, We have, um, just like with beef tartare, just with uh, 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 rare hamburgers, with a lot of different foods, um, restaurants, uh, as long as they provide a consumer advisory, and this is an area that we've done a bunch of research in, as long as they provide that and say to you, the consumer, hey, look, if you eat something that's raw or has never is undercooked, there's a risk of foodborne illness, and you're taking that risk um, decision, then then you go you go ahead. But we've done our our job of informing you on that. That's the way that the regulations are set up. Whether that's like whether that works, whether that's true, whether people understand that. I mean, that's a whole other other conversation. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you probably could find um, never been frozen fish uh, in sushi, um, and with a consumer advisory. And, uh, and that's a, that's sushi that might have worms in it. Well, and I would say too, we, we know that there have been outbreaks, uh, linked to sushi, not, not parasites, although there have been those as well, but most recently there's a type of tuna product called back scrape, which is basically Mm -hmm. you take, which sounds absolutely disgusting. You take the the bones of the tuna after you pick the good quality meat off and you scrape the rest of the, the, the meat off. And then you, you process that into low grade sushi meat. And so, um, and that has been linked to salmonellosis outbreaks. And then we, we also briefly, briefly mentioned Vibrio, right? So Vibrio is an organism that's naturally found in the marine environment. And that could also be present in sushi, even, you know, parasite risk aside. 
slide, and Vibrio could survive freezing. Salmonella could could survive freezing. Um, so I would say, you know, one of the things, and and maybe this is this this sort of purports with your experience as as a rock band if you're going to go to a sushi restaurant you want to go to a good sushi restaurant that sources good quality tuna and doesn't use back scrape tuna in their sushi and so you know the the way that you're going to achieve that is by going to states that are known for sushi and maybe that means it's a state uh, that, that that has a coast. I have to say, though, and it's even been the title of a podcast, some of the best scallops I've ever had in my life uh, were in uh, the town of Des Moines, Iowa, which does not have a seacoast, but yet this was a restaurant that was known for its scallops, and, and I had some very good scallops, but now they were also cooked, so so that there, was, there was that mitigation of risk there, but... Uh, but yeah, so it's it, again. It turns out, uh, as is almost a punchline on this podcast, um, it, it, it's complicated. Right. Well, and I'm very, I'm very impressed. You know, this is one of the things about uh, about scientists that work sort of in the public sector. Um, there, in the in the the world of lay people, and particularly in the world that you end up reading in the newspaper, political world, there's all this uh, lack of trust of government institutions, and there's the presumption that uh, that the government is wasteful, that the that the process is convoluted, so that that the work doesn't get done, or it is, the the work isn't really responsive in real time. Um, but you have both expressed a lot of faith and confidence in the FDA as an organization. And, I, and honestly, the first time, you know, Don, when you said that you were confident in the FDA, I was surprised because it's one of the it's one of the few times I've heard somebody say in recent times, right? Uh, oh, this is a government agency, and I trust that if this was a problem, they would know. Um, but then when I thought about it. It's often true that that when you talk to real scientists who know what who know what the organizations are actually doing and aren't thinking of them politically, but practically, that is true that the, that that uh, big agencies like the FDA are responsive and and are effective. Um, but how would you rate the FDA? In, in these terms? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I actually, I've got a kind of a, a long, no surprise, a long and convoluted answer. So part of the reason, so first of all, FDA is not a monolithic entity, right? And there's different components of FDA. And so when Ben and I say FDA, that's probably usually shorthand for the FDA Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, which is the part of FDA that's charged with the safety of the food supply. And Ben and I have some good friends and colleagues that work for that agency. Now, that's different from the people that are actually going out and doing inspections, right? So that's FDA ORA, the Office of Regulatory Affairs, I, I believe is what that stands for. But as much as I have, and I know some, some inspectors, and they're, they're good people, and they, they are out to, you know, to really put the screws to the industry and make sure when they do their inspections that they, every, you know, every I is dotted, every T is crossed. And, and then that's exactly the kind of person I want out inspecting, you know, my food supply. Um, on the other hand, I've also recently expressed my extreme annoyance and displeasure with FDA 
CEDAR, which is the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, because they have recently come out uh, banning uh, antibacterial soaps. And, and, uh, and, and one of the things that they've said in their ban on antibacterial soaps is that these products do not have a benefit in hand washing. And as a guy who's done research on hand washing and who studied these soaps, my research shows that there is a benefit. Now, part of it is a cultural thing because FDA Cedar, uh, they are a, a drug regulatory agency. And so their gold standard for proving something is a clinical trial, uh, which, is, which is fine. I mean, you know, I, I want uh, Viagra and cancer medicine and everything, you know, everything out there, real drugs to be, to be tested in clinical trials. Um, Unfortunately, I don't necessarily think that we need antibacterial soap to be tested in clinical trials. And, again, that's a difference of opinion. And, and they have the power, and so they're, they're going to do what they want. Um, unfortunately, if you, if you make a soap manufacturer demonstrate a benefit of an antibacterial soap through a clinical trial, what that soap manufacturer is probably going to do is say, you know, I don't make that. It's not, like, it's not like Viagra or heart medicine or something. I'm not making that much money on my antibacterial soap. So guess what, FDA? You've just by de facto, um, you know, basically created a ban on these products because I can't prove to you to the standard that you're looking for a clinical trial. I can't prove to you that this product is effective. And so, so again, my love of the FDA is, is a is a selected, selective and, and focused love because there are parts of FDA that I think are great and there are parts that are, that are, that are not so great. So you guys aren't concerned about the, about the premise that um, antibiotics are so prevalent and overused that they have created or they are in the process of creating an antibiotic resistant uh, like like fauna that sort of is going to prevail and is going to lead to bacteriological disease that we have no defense against. Well, no. And I, and I think that, so, sorry, let me, I, I got, I, let me respond, Ben, and then I'll shut up and let you say something. No, no, so, it's good. Go, um, go, go, go. Yeah. Uh, I, that, uh, no, I, I, would dis, I would disagree with your characterization of my position. I, I think that, but we have to separate the difference between antibiotic resistance and antibacterial soaps. Now, those, the, the, the antibiotics that we take in our bodies to fight infection are not the same kind of chemicals as the, the, the chemicals that are in um, antibacterial soaps, okay? Uh -huh. now, but the other point is that I understand that, that I understand FDA's point of view, FDA Cedar's point of view on the ecological consequences and the potential development of antibacterial resistance from these products. I, I, that, is a, that is a fine, well and good argument, and I'm not qualified as a scientist to judge that argument. I appreciate that's a good argument to, to be making. My specific criticism, and this is, you know, you get in, this is why I'm a pedantic academic scientist, my specific problem with what FDA Cedar did was they said that there's no benefit to these soaps, and and I disagree with that premise. I now if you want to do the cost benefit analysis and say, well, okay, so this is the benefit of these soaps, and this is the consequence, and we weigh the benefit and the cost, and we came to this conclusion. 
that's fine. But they didn't do that. They just said basically these compounds have no benefit, which makes it a lot easier then. They don't have to do any complex calculations. They just say no benefit, clear risk, we'll get rid of it, instead of saying, well, yeah, there's kind of some benefit and there's kind of some risk. And so, you know, now we need to, we, now we need to weigh those two things. So, so, no, I am concerned about antibiotic development of antibiotic-resistant organisms. And, and certainly there's a, a great difference of opinion on the part of scientists about what's causing that. I think part of what's causing that is overuse of antibiotics in humans. Um, but there's also some kind of interesting data that show that antibiotic use in animals, sub, sub-therapeutic levels, like so, and this is, this gets, is getting, we're getting kind of into the weeds here, but there, there, there's for some reason that we as, as scientists don't completely understand, if you take an animal, a food animal, and you give it low levels of antibiotics in its diet, it actually gains weight faster and puts on more sellable meat, um, but with the potential of creating this antibiotic resistance. And I think that that is something that people are concerned about, and, and I think that the industry is coming to realize that they need to do a better job. And certainly, if our, if our animals get sick, we want drugs to be able to treat them, but using drugs at these sub Therapeutic levels with potential consequences to the human health. Uh, the, the human health that that's a concern. So again, you know, um, this is uh, th- this is th- you know. I mean, you, you you make a valid point, but 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 it's my criticism of, of FDA Cedar still stands. So anyway, I've been talking a while, Ben. You should probably say something. No, I mean, I, I don't really have any a whole lot to, to add. I, I share that same concern, John, um, and, and I think Don's really characterized it. I, um, you know, we, we are, we are, but hosts in a bacterial or viral world. And, um, we, as we expose, um, microorganisms to lots of different chemicals, they'll, they will always, uh, chemicals and antibiotics and drugs, they, they will always, um, find a way to, uh, become resistant to them over time. I mean, that's just the, the, the beauty of, uh, you know, of microbes and, I, you know the sub subtherapeutic use in animals, uh, the um, I- I- environmental, um, uh, I guess, like uh, water uh, antibiotics in treatment plants, and and how that moves into our food system, and and then back into to humans. I mean, I think these are all really important questions. Um, and and there's nothing in this in this conversation as we go that's really really black and white. I think we as we and, and this is where where I think Don and I come at things as scientists. The more data that we have, the better analysis we can do, the better decisions we can make. And there's there's very oft very seldom do we have a all things are good, all things are bad type of um, uh, questions and answers in this in this world of food safety. But often that's that's where some of our um, uh, where, where some of the public is and where some of the media coverage goes. And so the, these are complex kind of, kind of decisions, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm equally as concerned about antibiotic resistance as, as the both of you are. Well, and that's my question as a layperson, and I know that this is a little bit off the topic of food safety, but there's a, there's a lot of hyperbole about, just as there was hyperbole about peak oil and uh, killer bees, um, right? Uh, uh, hyperbole and fire ants or whatever. Hyperbole about the the coming day when antibiotics will no longer be effective. 
And what I have never completely understood um, is why is it not possible to continue to develop new uh, iterations of antibiotic uh, chemistry uh, or biology? Uh, why, why is there some kind of ceiling on the effectiveness of new antibiotics that will keep pace with the the antibiotic resistant bugs? Well, and this, well, one, this is not my. Oh, do you want to go? Go ahead, Ben. Well, I, all I was going to say is that you know I think I think you're 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 right on, John. It's that they're already over time. Um, uh, and, and and I'll I'll speak to this from like the food side of things. There are already some some antibiotics that are just not used anymore uh, because of their uh, they're not um, effective. And and this would be like uh, to treat salmonella um, infections in uh, in in chickens or you know or uh, you know other pathogens that might that we might want to. Um, address in in animal production that we just we uh, we and i say we the the industry the veterinarian world the regulatory world scientists that we have moved away from because they have lost their effectiveness um against those bacterial populations at the exact same time where others are coming in that better better chemistry or more targeted chemistry uh uh is are, are replacing them so it's it's not a um I don't have the bleak outlook of uh, will we will run out of antibiotics. I, I, I have the more, um, I guess, realistic or pragmatic outlook that if we only use the antibiotics that we had on hand today, like September 19th, 2016, that at some point we would lose effectiveness and, and they wouldn't be worth using anymore. But But we... Are, are constantly looking for better tools, better use of the current tools to reduce uh, resistance, um, you know, more targeted um, uh, management practices, lots, lots of different things. So it's, it's like a, it's a continuum. And when we look at the hyperbole, the, the hyperbole, um, we often are looking at that as a snapshot, like, okay, everything's going to, going to end. Uh, but the, we're missing the caveat of if we continue to, to only use the exact things we have on hand right now. Right, like peak food or peak population. Right. When I was a kid in the 1970s, it was prognosticated that we were going to reach peak population in 1979 or something like that because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't supply the world with food. And then there were new food innovations, and all of a sudden, that nobody talked about it anymore because we were we were producing a lot more food from the land. Yeah, and and I think that that you know um, that that food yield um, population conversation is still relevant. It's still it's still here, um, and there are many people in food production, not so much Don and I, but in other areas of our colleges of agriculture that are looking at. Um, uh, increasingly less wasteful, better ways uh, to to keep uh, to produce food as our population grows. And so I, you know, maybe media wise that conversation doesn't doesn't happen as much. But it's still, I mean, every day there are people that that we have as colleagues that are working on that that question. So we don't hit peak population, um, you know, food uh, but, issues. But but there's an interesting. 
way of framing this, and, and I think that John had a good point about, like, I, I, I do think it's becoming harder and harder to develop antibiotics that are effective. Now, part of that might be policy, part of that might be um, the, the cost and the level of proof uh, that's required, so that's, that's part of it. Um, and I think that there's a danger, though, Ben, in thinking, and I, I know you didn't say this, but there's a danger in thinking, well, gosh, there's a technological solution for everyone. Right. So, boy, let's just keep having babies, and we'll figure out how to make more food, and it's okay. Global warming is great. Let's just keep throwing carbon dioxide into the air because scientists are going to figure it out. And it's scientists. And, uh, but 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 you know, but that's a really dangerous road to go down. We shouldn't, uh, we Absolutely. shouldn't go down that road. We need to we need to do everything right. We need to we need to figure out. We need to get antibiotics uh, out of the food supply where we, where we think that they are contributing to resistance. We need to try to only use antibiotics to treat bacterial infections. So that means if your kid has an earache and it's viral, then you're not getting antibiotics from the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. So, right. yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, alternately really exciting uh, to be going to live in the future and and equally terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, now I have two questions, and I don't want to. Uh, you know, you've been doing this podcast for five years. I presume that a lot of these questions are sort of recapitulating earlier episodes. Um, but I'm I'm guessing as scientists that you don't have the reservations that a typical German grocery store consumer has about GMOs? No. A short answer, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. You're basically pro-GMO. You find no reason not to, I mean, and certainly, in, I guess, in corn, uh, that ship has sailed. There's GMO corn. All, co- all, all corn is GMO now. I don't think it's um, all It's all corn. Um, and, and, I'll, and, and I guess I'll be... Let me take a stab at this real, real quick. Um, I wouldn't sort of characterize myself as pro GMO. I think I, I see it's, it's a trade-off situation and it is a technology that's really powerful that in certain situations, it makes a lot of sense to use. I am not of the, uh, ilk that, um, uh, genes um, specifically into a set of uh, other genes and DNA uh, will somehow inherently increase the risk of me growing horns or or whatever. Um, you know, the, I think the technology has been through uh, more safety um, assessments by and, and environmental assessments by by lots and lots of uh, different government agencies worldwide. Um, that being said, if um, it, it doesn't mean that every GMO concept that we can all think of that someone might be able to make has a place in in our in our food production just for the um, sake of it being GMO. So I, I, I get real careful on whether I'm pro or anti anything. I think there's it's a it it is definitely a um a, a powerful tool that um that can reduce pesticide use that can reduce the amount of diesel that's used uh in in, in uh soybean production uh that makes for um less waste or loss in, in in potato crops you know lots of different things but but overall um you know it's it's hard to be like pro or anti anything uh, for for me, yeah, and I, I would I would characterize my position not as pro GMO, but as not anti GMO. Right, <laughs> that's not too yeah. subtle a point. 
Right. No, no, I think that's exactly uh, that's exactly the point, right? Um, anti-GMO. It's not a. It's well. It's like abortion, right? Nobody's pro-abortion. <laughs> right. Um, they're just not anti-abortion. Yeah. Uh, what? So another question. And again, you know, I'm sure that there are episodes and episodes of your podcast uh, dealing with this. But as food safety people, do you imagine a future or or slash advocate for more vegetarianism? Good question. No. I, I would say I I think I think people that are vegetarians should be able to eat uh, healthy, pathogen-free food, same as non-vegetarians. And as a as a guy who went through a hippie phase and who was a vegetarian at one point, um, you know, I think that's that's fine. Uh, as a guy who is a confirmed dedicated meat eater today, uh, I, I don't want that choice taken away from me. But you know, it's interesting because, and again, while we're Sort of thinking about these higher higher level issues, I do know that there are, or at least the the evidence, and again, not my area of expertise, but there's evidence that indicates that animal agriculture does have ecological consequences, not just food safety consequences, but overall consequences. So, so yeah, uh, uh, I that's uh, that's my long rambling non-answer. <laughs> well, and and all all I'll add to that is, um, fifteen twenty years ago. Um, we we linked fruits and or we linked all of the pathogens that Don and I are mm. concerned with to meat and eggs and dairy and uh, and fish and over the last twenty years um, over half of the foodborne illnesses that we estimate happen in the U S uh, are linked to fresh fruits and vegetables and so I um, I, I also shared Don's uh, comment of I, I want. Whatever choice people want to make, I want to make sure that we do the best to keep pathogens out of that out of that food. But a, a switch to a purely vegetarian um, uh, lifestyle isn't isn't a pathogen free lifestyle. Right. Well, so a lot of the things that it seems like you guys work on are up the food chain. Lol. Uh, <laughs> by which I mean you're doing work to prevent contaminated food from reaching the consumer. But what I'm what I'm not or, you know, reaching the consumer by whatever means, yep. what does the consumer what choices do the, does the consumer have to to avoid receiving uh, contaminated food? Because if you're standing out in front of a restaurant, I mean, in answer to your question, Don, I only eat at the finest <laughs> sushi restaurants. I, mean, I expect no less of you, John. I mean, the only sushi restaurants I eat at are ones when I walk in the door, they say, Mr. Roderick, welcome, <laughs> yeah. welcome to the sushi restaurant. Everyone bows. I bow to them, and I know that the fish is, you know, going to be amazing. But as you're as you're surveying the restaurants in your neighborhood, as you're looking at Yelp and all of the completely untrustworthy reviews there, what can you do? Or you're going to Whole Foods and spending uh, an enormous amount of money to get food of whatever normal quality. How do you protect yourself from pathogens? Well, yeah, and that's that's a, that's a really good question. And, and so as Ben was saying a little bit ago, the food safety world has changed from pathogens are in meat and poultry to pathogens are everywhere. And and but the, the what the industry is doing has changed too, and the industry has really really changed its tune because for many years the meat and poultry industry were like. 
we can't make pathogen-free meat and poultry. You people, you consumer people, you need to cook your meat. And if you don't cook your meat, you're going to get sick. And they've come around to, well, you know, actually we as an industry do have a role to play and we need to minimize. We, we know we can't provide pathogen-free food, but we need to minimize that. So, um, But, yeah, the, the idea of what can consumers do to prevent Food poisoning is 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 a is a really good one, and so I'll, I'll give you a couple a couple of pointers. So, number one, of course, if you are preparing foods in your own home, you know you need to properly cook things. Um, of course, as Ben said, a lot of food point food poisoning outbreaks are linked to fresh fruits and vegetables, which you're not going to cook necessarily unless you're going to have a wilted spinach salad instead of a, a fresh spinach salad. So, <laughs> so there's some trade-offs there. Um, Certainly, we've talked uh, we've talked quite a bit in this podcast about social media and uh, things like restaurant reviews. What a, a lot of, not a lot, but what's starting to happen now is being able to connect restaurant review websites like Google, like Yelp. Uh, to uh, uh, restaurant inspection. So in other words, I can go and see the Yelp reviews, but then I can also click a link and it will tell me for the last five times that restaurant was inspected, how did they do on their health department inspection? Now, again, that's not a perfect guarantee of safety, but that that has a, a role to play. And then uh, some colleagues of ours have looked at like what factors in a restaurant inspection actually might help to reduce food poisoning risk. And then you can, you can look at the same thing with respect to supermarkets. So I don't uh, I don't shop at Whole Foods, but there's a chain here in the Northeast called Wegmans, and, and I know I know the food safety people at Wegmans, and I know uh, through work with colleagues that uh, the, the New Jersey farmers that sell to Wegmans, and I know the the strength of the audits that those those fruit and vegetable farmers have to go through to provide food to Wegmans. So I know there's no such thing as risk free fruits and vegetables, but you know I know if I go to Wegmans, I'm I'm I may be paying more, but you know what I know I'm getting some additional food safety bang um, uh, for that buck. And so there, there are things that, that people can, can do. And of course, you got to pay attention. And, you know, if you, if you, you know, uh, shoppers club cards at supermarkets are maybe you think that they're tracking you and that's evil. But if you, if you use a shoppers club card and you buy a food product that has been recalled, that gives the supermarket a way to actually, cause they can, cause they track that. They know that you person X bought this food on this day. And guess what? It was part of this batch of food that's being recalled. That actually gives them a way to reach out to you. Uh, uh, and, and in the, in the event of an outbreak and, and, and communicate with you and get you to, to possibly return that food product. And so, I mean, there's there's a there's sort of a big brotherish as, aspect to this, but then but there's some positive benefits to that this interconnected world, and and that people do have more resources for being able to try to manage food safety. But of course, no, no nothing is 100. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For me, I, and I'm I'm cynical on this, and I and I do have a food safety bent on a lot of my. Um, purchase uh, decisions, maybe not a lot of my, per- but enough. I ask a lot of questions and I, and this is maybe why Don thought I was like a dick when he met me the first time. Um, but it's, I, I do, if I go to the farmer's market, I do the, the benefit of going to the farmer's market is that I can often talk to the person that grew the food and I'm going to ask them about what they're doing to make sure that deer aren't running through their field. And they might give me an answer and saying, well, not much, but when I do see deer poop, I take a, a circle around that and make sure that I don't harvest around it. And that's, for me as a consumer, the type of answer that I want to hear. I, what I don't want to hear from someone when I ask them that question is, 
I don't really care about that or I don't do anything about it or dear natural and we can't do anything about it. I really want, you know, I, I don't have the expectation, the unrealistic ex- expectation that, um, that my food comes to me with zero chance of contamination. But I do want to know whomever I'm buying it from, whether it's at that restaurant or at the farmer's market or at a grocery store, that, that they are doing what they can to make sure that it doesn't come to me with a pathogen on it. And, right. and that they know what, what, like how to actually do that. Um, and, and increasingly, um, that like that kind of dickish kind of question does put pressure back on the industry. Because if, if I ask that question and you ask that question, um, there, there might be something there. So maybe you guys should do this. People are kind of concerned about it. Um, uh, uh, I think lawsuits and, and social media have done a fantastic job on, um, uh, changing behaviors and and all, off, all, almost shaming some some individuals and some firms into doing things better. Um, you know, we haven't talked about Don, Don and I have talked a lot about Chipotle over the last year and a half. We haven't talked about it today, but that's a that's a really like special kind of firm here that's had um, you know six outbreaks in a six month period last year that that took a massive economic hit that. I don't think their you know, shares and stock prices are nearly where they were um, a year and a half ago, and, and that have had to change how they manage things. Like you know, so um, uh, that public perception, those um, uh, uncomfortable questions, they they do they do have the potential for for impact on changing how the industry works um, uh, as a whole. As much as our industry friends might not want to always admit that. Well, and, and Ben, can you talk – I think John might be very interested in the work that your lab has been doing around um, restaurant servers and, and uh, sort of your yeah. secret shopper. I don't, you, I don't know if you call it that. But you, go, you, you, have, you and your students go into restaurants and you ask questions about uh, the, the, the beef that you're about to get. Yeah, so, we, so um, one of the things we talked about earlier was around consumer advisories and, and little messages that you might see on – on menus. And so, um, the FDA, uh, you know, the, 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 that we mentioned before, um, set a national guideline, a model code that, that, uh, almost every state has adopted some, every state's adopted some version of this code. And almost all the states that exist, uh, nationally have this consumer advisory in one form or another. And, and meeting the, what it says in the, in the food code is, is relatively easy. It says you have to do, you have to put some written information on a menu saying if you eat undercooked, you know, hamburger, undercooked meat, that you're at increased risk for foodborne illness. Well, when you engage in a conversation, as we did at 235 restaurants nationally with, um, uh, with servers and, and say, could you, you know, we're going to, I'm going to order an undercooked hamburger. Is there any risk to, to me eating that? And then we hear like a totally different story from what FDA has. Things like USDA outlawed E. coli and beef in 2008. So you can eat all the undercooked beef you want to. Um, which is not true, know, by the way. Which is not true, yeah. Uh, to, <laughs> to, to things like we, um, you, you know, our, our, our cooks, our chefs know the right temperature to cook it to. Uh, they'll keep you safe. It's guaranteed every time, which is also like not, you know, a, a complete answer to no, you don't have to worry about it at all. And it's a, sort of a bunch of garbage. 
And so we we found this like wide range of answers. Um, the research that, that we did, about 80% of the answers contradicted with what the restaurant itself had on its menu um, and contradicted with, with what FDA had uh, stipulated. So asking questions is a start, um, and but you have to ask the right people the right questions. And so asking a server versus the manager versus calling, um, you know, an owner or or corporate uh, about this, you may get some, some different answers. Uh, And that, and and this is like, as I talk this out and as we, we talk about this stuff, ultimately as someone who's like, if I remove myself as a food safety person, all I want to do is eat. Like all I just, like, <laughs> right. Like I just want to go and I don't want to get sick and I want to eat and I want to trust that someone's doing what they can to make sure I don't get sick. Um, well, and that's what the, that's what the restaurant industry says about consumer advisories on menus. People don't want to hear that they're going to get sick from food. So why are you making us put these advisories on menus? Yeah. <sighs> How, how much of how much of what happens? How much of the food sickness is just a result of people not washing their hands? That's like, a pro- yeah, probably a lot. I don't think we really know. Yeah, well, we right? we, we don't know. What what one thing we we can we do know is that. So for multi-state outbreaks, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention get, in, get involved, and they have uh, what they call the contributing factors. And if you look at um, the, the contributing factors in multi-state outbreaks, and you look at the, the contributing factors that actually relate to, let's call it hand hygiene, um, it is probably a number one or number two cause, uh, uh, you know, relative to a bunch of other causes. And of course, in many cases, it's multiple factors. So you can't always tease it out. It's not like it, everything adds up to 100%. You get more than 100% because you have multiple causes. But but based on our best available data, it is it is certainly the number one or number two cause of food poisoning. Hmm. What is my risk to myself of eating food where I have not adequately washed my own hands. Well, if you if you are not ill with uh, uh, vomiting or diarrhea, that risk is probably pretty low. Um, so, uh, but it depends on what's going on in the household. So, if you have a sick child and that child has vomiting or and and or diarrhea, and you are charged with uh, both cleaning up after that child as well as preparing a meal for your family, well, I would say that hand washing is going to be paramount. And even with adequate hand washing, you, stay, you still may not be able to mitigate that risk. But if you, if you are in a house by yourself and you decided you weren't ever going to wash your hands, um, I would say, again, the risk is probably not that I'd recommend that, but I would say that the risk is probably pretty small um, uh-huh. as long as uh, as long as you because here's the thing like there's lots and lots of bacteria in poop, um, but that most of those bacteria don't make us sick. So it's disgusting to think about them getting in food. But unless it's a, an organism that causes illness you know, the chances are uh, pretty minimal. And and there also is some kind of interesting epidemiology that shows that while people who are sick with food poisoning 
um, continue to shed uh, the organism in their in their feces for a long period of time, the time when they're most at risk of making other people sick is when they still have diarrhea. So you can have a, a firm bowel. Um, I hope you're not eating while we're we're having this conversation, John. You could have. No, a, I hope a, no one is. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I hope. I hope every, I think I, people by now should know not to eat while they're listening to your podcast. <laughs> if um, if you have a, I hope firm, everyone has a firm bowel here. Yes. If you, if you have a even even if you're shedding pathogens, if your bowel movement is firm, then it is unlikely. I mean, obviously, hand washing is still important, but you are much less at risk of spreading illness than if you have diarrhea because guess what if you have diarrhea like stuff's going everywhere and and even with good hand washing there's there's risk so anyway right. well and and the only the only thing i'm going to add to that is um th- that's in this whole like fecal oral route um hand washing it, it all depends on what you're doing with your hands right like good point if I was making a bunch of sausage and I was handling a bunch of ground uh, pork and and beef, um, hand washing to me is, has a protective value, right? Because I'm going to take that food and I'm going to cook it, but I may still have some some pathogens that end up on my hands, right? Um, and so so it really it really depends. Wow, uh, that's <laughs> that's very interesting to me because you get into the habit of thinking that. All poop is poison, and um, but it's also horrifying to think that every time I've had food poisoning, it's a result of someone vomiting and diarrheaing, and then not washing up properly. Well, and it, it might not be that, right? Because it might have been that it was just uh, the salmonella from the inside of the cow that got into the burger. And certainly with the E. coli uh, outbreak, the jack-in-the-box outbreak, that was not as a result of somebody not washing their hands. That was as a result of uh, E. coli getting from the intestine of the cow into the burger and the restaurant not having adequate cooking practices in place to ensure that those E. coli in the burger were killed, right? And so right. it's not all a result of that, but but that does, that does play a role. And again, the, that uh, Clostridium perfringens in your beef stew we talked about at the, at the beginning of the, the show, um, that's not a hand-washing thing. That's just an organism that's, that's, that's just going to be in some meat from time to time. So, so it's not... Um, you know, it's not, it's not always a cause, but it's definitely, it's definitely up there. And, you know, one of the things that Ben and I have been involved with for the last five years or so is uh, this very large uh, research project run out of North Carolina State on norovirus. And, and, and this is a, a viral disease that um, we have in the past probably 10 or 15 years come to realize really does cause a lot of illness. And, and, but, but that was a gradual realization. Like there's, there's a lot, there's actually a lot of illness that the CDC tracks that is unattributable. Like, like, okay, we know a bunch of people got sick. We don't know from what, and we don't know what we don't know what they ate, and we don't know what made them sick. But, but it's wow. consistent with with uh, with food poisoning. So you you have mentioned the Jack in the Box incident several times with a lot of sort of familiarity. Are uh, I'm assuming within your world there are some famous cases, and that Jack in the Box represents a. Um, you know, a tent pole yeah. in yep. in that world. So how 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 big a deal was that particular? I mean, was that the um, was that the cyanide in the aspirin or silent or whatever that was yeah. in the Tylenol moment? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was definitely it was definitely one of them. And that, and that's probably a, a yeah. I don't know. 
don't know if you could point to a bigger a bigger tent pole or a taller tent pole. That's that was a pretty big one. And, and it it was a big one because of when it happened and where it happened and what it happened with. I mean, it was a pathogen. This you know E. coli one five seven H seven where um, it, it was relatively new. Uh, and not, not the, not the bug was new, but our connection of that bug to illness was new. Um, it, the outbreak happened right before president Clinton's inauguration and it made it into the inauguration, uh, speech about food safety. So politically it made a big, uh, 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 it, it was a big deal. And yeah, it was, um, I, you know, not to be too trite, but we probably aren't having this podcast without that that outbreak. I mean, there are people that were working in food safety, but but it was it was a very it's a very important part of our world that that outbreak. So did it was it like nine eleven in the sense that it influenced your decision to actually become food safety experts? Not it didn't influence my decision directly. Um, I, so I didn't enter university until 1997 and I didn't even know, actually, truthfully, I didn't even know anything about food safety until, um, I was working for this professor, um, Doug, who we mentioned before, and another outbreak that happened in Canada went down, uh, where a bunch of people, um, in the, in a small town called Walkerton, uh, got sick from a water supply. And although it wasn't food, it was water. It got into this whole area of people get sick from things that they ingest. And I, I mean, literally had no concept of that. And so it was only after the fact that I, um, you know, learned about Jack in the Box and then read all about the sort of fallout and how that changed regulations and how that changed focus um, that I have a, a, you know, a, a greater um, appreciation for the importance of that, that outbreak. Yeah, and I would say I was already on the faculty at Rutgers uh, in 1993, already a food microbiologist. And so while, it, while that incident may have you know, triggered resources and, and shaped my career. It wasn't, it wasn't a defining moment. It wasn't, it wasn't the moment when I said, Hey, I'm going to be a food safety microbiologist. I had already made that decision. Right. I see. Um, well, so in wrapping up, is there anything that you want Don, You've been, uh, you've been aware of, uh, of my world of eating questionable foods <laughs> for a long time. Is there anything that you wanted for, uh, forever to say to me or any questions you have about my own world just as a just as a, a person that eats everything because I do and I eat across a wide spectrum of food quality not sushi which I o- <laughs> only take the I only take the very finest into myself but I will stop at any greasy spoon any weird uh, Philly cheesesteak restaurant, um, I will eat almost anything except potatoes. <laughs> uh, what Not for would, food safety reasons. No, because they're <laughs> disgusting. You're wrong, John, but, but okay. Uh, potatoes are awful. They're, okay, they're, they're like dirt balls covered with butter. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat some for dinner. I'm having dirt Blech. balls. Blech. Dirt balls uh, covered with butter and salt. But like, so what would you, uh, what, any questions for me or anything that you've, uh, you've been dying to say? Uh, 
Oh no, no. Except just thank you so much. I um, I I have been sort of like sitting like at your feet uh, on Twitter and listening to your podcast and just uh, just uh, you're just it's just so. Thank you for for well, I mean, obviously, thank you for making all the music that you made. But thank you so much for doing uh, podcasts. Thank you for being on Twitter. Thank you for talking about food. Thank you for engaging with us. Uh, it's been it's just been so so interesting for me. And no, I other than you know lecturing you about how you're wrong about potatoes, I no, I don't have any. I, I th- and thank you and thank you for thank you for talking about food. Right? I mean, obviously, food is something that's so important to us. We we all interact with it every day. Um, um, but but no, I, and I certainly wouldn't try to change you, John. I, I, but I appreciate that you are willing to listen, that you are willing to be educated, that you ask. I mean, John, you ask such good questions. I really I really wasn't sure how this podcast was going to go, but you had so many good questions for us that I just I really I just really appreciate you being on the podcast. It's been it's been just really a delight. Do do, do your shows not typically involve your guests? Just. Uh, interviewing you about food science? We, <laughs> no, this is great. <laughs> we don't. We don't have. We we have had guests in the past. Most shows is just Ben and I talking about food safety in the news, or what what beverages we had, or 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 uh, before the podcast, or you know things like that. So no, it's it's uh, you've been you've been an outstanding guest, and I think you've honestly you. raised the bar for future guests. Oh yeah, well that's always true when I appear on a podcast. <laughs> only the, we only have the finest guests on, right? Just like just like sushi, sure. Only the finest guests on on Food Safety Talk. Sure. Well, good. I mean, this has been a real pleasure, and I've learned a lot. And uh, I I thank you for having me as a guest on your show. Well, thank you, and yeah, we we've really appreciated your your time and your candor and your questions. This has been this has been awesome. Great. Uh, Cool. All right. Well, I'll see you on the internet, and I look forward to all the different uh, all the different small lectures that Don has in store for me. <laughs> Excellent. Thank right, you, John. Do not do not eat that. <laughs> okay. Bye, then. Bye, Don. Bye, bye. bye John. Thanks. Thanks. He's gone. Cool. Oh, that's amazing. That so was good. Oh, he's so good. My God, uh, what a, what a guy! What a guy! It was so good. Hey, uh, so I have to run. Okay. Um, yeah, Jack. Jack is. Uh, I got to go to hockey. Oh. Uh, okay. Cool. But uh, I will talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye.